Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning, New Spring, and uh, welcome to Church Online this morning. Um, it's great to be with you. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount over the last couple of months, and uh, this morning we're going to continue with that. This morning's message is titled Practicing Kingdom Grace and Love, and I've given it a subtitle today. It goes especially towards those who offend us and even our enemies. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, reading from verses 38 in just a moment. You might recall from our series so far that in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been highlighting a major problem that his followers uh, face. In the beginning of chapter 5 in Matthew, uh, Jesus has been teaching on the Beatitudes, um, and we've been looking at those over the last couple of months, as you know. And uh, we've been calling them the, the kingdom agenda or the way that we ought to live as followers of Jesus in, king, in, in, he, in heaven's kingdom realm here on earth. But in verse 20, he highlights a problem. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he was, of course, exaggerating a little bit when he kind of worded it that way in that it's true that we have absolutely no way of making ourselves righteous before God by simply doing the law. The law was always intended to show us that there is a path towards righteousness that can only be found through Jesus. And, and that as a kingdom-minded people, we could only ever hope to live out this different way of living through a life of faith and obedience uh, to the very essence of the law, which was always to love God and love God. Others. And that's what Jesus has been talking about all through this passage. And so in order for him to highlight what this kingdom-minded living looks like, Jesus kind of, he goes on in chapter 5 to highlight six uh, practical examples from the rabbinical teaching of the time on the law, and he reframes them in a kingdom perspective. And these are the six topics that he highlights or kind of drills down on. Murder, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, seeking revenge, and loving our enemies. And this morning, we're going to have a look at the last two, uh, seeking revenge and loving our enemies. You might recall, if you've been following along in this series, um, that we've previously talked about the importance of a particular phrase in this passage. And it goes like this, you have heard that it was said. In the Gospels, and in, specifically in Matthew's Gospel, uh, whenever Jesus referred to the quoted, whenever he referred to the Old Testament or quoted the Old Testament, we always find the phrase, the written word, or a similar phrase, it is written. So when Jesus says here in uh, Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, we immediately know that he must be talking about something else. That something else are the teachings and traditions of the religious leaders. Keep in mind also that at this particular point in history, the majority of people were not able to read for themselves and even some of them were not allowed to read for themselves the scriptures. And so they would go along to their local synagogue where the scriptures would be read to them and then the teachers of the law would kind of expand on those, on those, and on those readings and they would explain the meaning of what was being read to them. The problem was that the teachings and the explanations of the law um, Really, they had descended into a complicated list of do's and don'ts. 
In fact, for the most part, the teachers of the law no longer translated and explained the actual law itself, but rather they taught from the Talmud, which was an, an, an extensive codification of rabbinic teachings and traditions. And so, in effect, the traditions of men began to replace the word of God. And that was actually something that God said would happen when he spoke through the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through to 48, is Jesus really confronting the heart attitude behind those who are twisting the law to suit themselves. They were twisting it out of their own sense of a desire for a moral, self-righteous piety. So what were the religious leaders teaching and what did Jesus have to say in response to what they were teaching? Before we answer those questions, we need to consider, I think, the broader context of this whole passage. Remember, Jesus is, con is he's confronting the religious leaders um, over the way that they're deliberately manipulating and twisting the law to suit their own uh, righteous desires. A couple of weeks ago, I used an example uh, when we talked through the passage on hatred and murder of a line kind of drawn on the ground, and uh, Brett used the same example a few weeks before that as well. And I'm going to use it again because I think it really serves to highlight the principle that's being played out here in Jesus' teaching. If you can imagine that there's a line kind of drawn down the middle here, and, uh, and that represents the law, the, the purity of the law. And in the Old Testament, uh, what we find, and I'm generalising here a little bit, but what we find is that we lived on this side of the line, and God gave his law, and he also gave uh, things like the sacrificial system, and all of those things were designed to help people live according to the righteous standard that God was setting for his people. And so as long as they practised those things in faith, with faith and in obedience, then they were counted as righteous because they were able to then practice and follow the law as God said. But we know from the Old Testament that that wasn't actually what made them righteous. What made people righteous was uh, God. God made them righteous. We know this because people like Abraham, who, who preceded even the giving of the law, he was counted as righteous because of his faith in God. So he was able to stand in this position because of God's favour on his life, because of his obedience and faith. But that's what the law was designed to do. It was designed to move us as people, or the Israelites as people, to that place where they could live in accordance with God's law and be counted as righteous. But what the religious leaders began to do over time was they began to try to define and refine the law so that they could see how close to the line they could actually physically get without stepping over it, without breaking the law. Uh, and so uh, we, and we've looked at this a number of times over the last few weeks and we're going to recap it again in a minute. But, but basically they boiled the law down to how close to the line can I get without crossing it? Because if I can do that, then I must be righteous. Um, and they started inventing all sorts of rules and regulations which kind of allowed them to justify how they might stand on that line. The problem with that line of thinking, if I can use that phrase, is that um, it doesn't take into consideration what righteousness really is. There are two aspects to righteousness. There's what we call imputed righteousness, which is the fact that God makes us right with himself because of our faith in him and our obedience to uh, his word. Uh, that's, that's positional. But there's also an ongoing righteousness where, where we, we, in the Old Testament, where we keep the law and practice the uh, traditions that are given because they help to remind us that God has put us in this position. 
When Jesus Christ came, when he lived his life, when he died and when he was resurrected, righteousness, and so now we're on this side of the line, righteousness was credited to us as believers when we put our faith in the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. So once again, we find ourselves positionally in this righteous place. We're on the line, but we're actually on this side of the line now. But still, we have this tendency to want to see how close to the line we can get before we break the law. The problem is, is that in Jesus, we're actually now dead from this and alive in this, if that makes sense. And so in this teaching, Jesus is actually inviting us as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to not live as close to the line as we possibly can, but to live in the freedom of the space that exists over here. The freedom, freedom from the law to live as citizens of heaven in kingdom's realm. So that's kind of what we're talking about as we go through this passage this morning. And so Jesus gives six examples of, of how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were doing that. And we've covered those, but I'm going to highlight them again this morning. The first one was the teaching around the issue of murder and hatred in verses 21 to 26. The law said, do not murder. So that's the line that, that we find ourselves on. Do not murder. It was very clear. Some of the religious teachers, however, began to teach along the lines of, as long as you don't actually commit murder, then you're free to express, express all kinds of hatred. But as long as you don't actually you know, do the act of murder, then you're okay. Jesus said, having a heart attitude of hatred towards someone is no different to actually wanting them dead. So he redefines the law and, and kind of says, well, actually, you don't want to be living close to the line. You want to be living in freedom over here. So if you have hatred in your heart, that's the same heart attitude, really, as if you have murdered someone. In essence, what he was saying was this, that a kingdom-minded person has a heart attitude that seeks forgiveness and restoration. That's what it looks like to be a person living in the kingdom of God. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus teaches on the issue of uh, adultery. The law says, do not have a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. It's very clear, really. But some of the religious leaders began to teach that it meant, as long as you actually don't engage in a sexual relationship, you are free to express your desire in any way you like. Jesus said that if your heart attitude is to deliberately entertain lustful thoughts about another person, then that is actually no different to committing adultery. So we, again, we can see Jesus is confronting this idea that people can walk as close to the line as they would like to try and get, but really he's inviting us to live in this space, which is freedom in the kingdom of, of heaven. The point he's making is this, that a kingdom-minded person has a heart attitude um, uh, sorry, that a kingdom-minded person uh, has a hard attitude that, that, that deliberately uh, pursues purity. That, that's what he's talking about. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus teaches on divorce. And, and Brett covered this brilliantly. The law says, if you divorce your wife, you must give her a divorce notice. That's what the law said. Some of the religious teachers began to teach that it meant that you may divorce your spouse for any number of reasons as long as you actually give her the divorce notice. And you can see there again, they're trying to get as close to the line as possible without crossing it. Jesus said, the only grounds for divorce is unfaithfulness. Anyone who initiates a divorce for any other reason is the one who is actually unfaithful. So again, you can see he's turning it to orientate us towards this place of, of freedom. He's dealing with a heart attitude. 
And the kingdom-minded person is the person who has a heart attitude that seeks, uh, that seeks to serve the best interest of the other person. And in this context, it's the, in the marriage relationship, so the spouse. Verses 33 to 37, I'm guessing you can start to see the picture here. In verses 33 to 37, Jesus teaches on swearing oaths. The law says, if you swear an oath, you must keep it. Very clear. But some of the religious teachers began to teach that it meant as long as you don't swear an oath that actually uses God's name, then you don't necessarily have to keep it. Again, edging as close to the line of legality as possible. However, Jesus said, every promise that you make, you make before God, no matter what you swear on. Therefore, it is better not to swear an oath than to break one and lose your integrity and be called a liar. A kingdom-minded person, therefore, is someone who has the heart attitude that demonstrates honesty and integrity at all times. Again, we see him inviting us to walk and live in this space, a space of, of freedom, away from, the, from that very narrow place which, we call, which we're calling the line. You see, the problem with the line is the closer you get to it, the more easy it is to fall over it. And Jesus says, don't, don't walk in that place. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Walk here in the freedom that you have from that um, and live a life that's different. Live a life that has meaning and is actually very freeing as compared to trying to always walk along that precipice. That brings us to today's passage. Uh, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 5, as I said, verses 38 to 48. It's actually two different themes, so we're going to do them uh, one at a time. Um, and the first one we'll find in verses 38. So have a look, uh, read along if you've got your Bible there. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your coat also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. And do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. Imagine for a moment, if you can, that you lived in ancient times. And you and your family lived in a place where there were no police, no courts, no local government, no king or ruling authority over you and the people around you. One day, as you're going about your business, just minding your own business, you are shocked with the news that one of your neighbours has intentionally and maliciously hit one of your children so hard that it's knocked four of their teeth out. What would you do? There's no authority to report it to, nowhere that you can turn to seek justice. What if the situation was worse? What if your child was intentionally killed? I would imagine that you would probably want to take the matter into your own hands and seek retribution, maybe even to the point of blood revenge. And perhaps you would try to impose, if not the same, then a much more stronger, harsher retaliation on the person that's hurt you. You take revenge. The person's family who has hurt you, their family doesn't like what you've done, so they've got it in their mind that they're going to take revenge and retaliation on you for what you've done. And so it sets up this cycle of retaliation and revenge between you and them, and that becomes a blood feud. And sadly, 
this pattern of retaliation and revenge, retaliation and revenge between you and them gets repeated over and over and over and over again. And we see that pattern all through human history. And I think what this story demonstrates is the true nature of the human heart. And not just from the pages of history, because if we're honest, typically when somebody hurts us, we want more than an eye for an eye. I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes it crosses my mind that, you know, actually I want a face for an eye. But that's how we think. But God knows that, and he knew that about us all along. He knows the extent of the corrupt nature of the human heart, and so he implemented a system of justice into the law, one that was designed to circumvent the human desire for retaliation and, uh, and revenge. It was a system designed as a principle of proportional justice. It was also designed to appropriately punish any offender. But most importantly, the concept of life for life, eye for eye and tooth for tooth was introduced to prevent people from falling into greater sin. Because our propensity as people, as humans, is to go over the top in regard to seeking revenge and retribution and dishing out punishment. But instead, now with this system in place, the injured person or perhaps a relative of the injured person could go to the governing judicial authorities of Israel to seek justice. And it was the court who now had the authority under God to judge the severity of the crime that had been committed and to hand out an appropriate, fair and measured punishment. That's how it was designed to work. Nowhere in the Old Testament that I can find do we, do we see a case of an individual application of this law? It is always in the context of a judicial system. This is where the teachings of the Pharisees began to deviate from the law. Some of them taught that it was every person's individual right um, to practice eye for eye and tooth for tooth retaliation. Notice, however, in the, in the, in the text... That, that when Jesus says, when he repeats what the religious leaders are teaching, it's not exactly what the law says. There are two main Old Testament passages that address, there are others, but there are two main Old Testament passages which address this issue. The first comes from Exodus chapter 21. Let me just read a few verses from there. And, and notice the context. If men fight and hit a pregnant woman and her child is born prematurely, but there is no serious injury... The one who hit her will be surely be punished in accordance with what the woman's husband demands of him and he will pay what the court decides. So you can see that there's the, the court or the judicial system working uh, in relationship with the, the family that's been offended. But if there is a serious injury, then you will give a life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Again, in Leviticus 24, we see similar teaching around this law. If a man beats any person to death, he must be put to death. One who beats an animal to death must make restitution for it, life for life. If a man inflicts an injury on his fellow citizen, just as he has done, it must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he inflicts an injury on another person, that same injury must be inflicted on him. One who beats an animal to death must make restitution for it, but one who beats a person to death must be put to death. There will be one regulation for you, whether a resident foreigner or a native citizen, for I am the Lord 
your God. That's what the law said. That's how it was set up to work. Both of these passages make it quite clear that there are two distinct and separate issues. One regarding personal injury or maiming and one regarding the taking of a life. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had no intention, as far as I can tell, from twisting the law in regard to the punishment for taking a life. The law was pretty clear in that regard, a life for a life. There are, of course, multiple passages in the Old and the New Testament which address this issue of, of, of punishment and the judicial system and how it works, um, you know, regarding whether it was intentional murder or, or, or an unplanned accident, so to speak. But what the Pharisees and the religious leaders did do was they twisted the law in regard to what it said about maiming or injuring another person. They took the part of the law that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and they used it to justify and in some cases legitimise personal retaliation and revenge. And that's the key word. This is about personal revenge. But Jesus teaches otherwise. Once again, he offers us a different perspective, a different way of living. You see, the Old Testament law addressed what the court should do to a person who was committed, who had committed a criminal offence related to murder or maiming. Jesus, on the other hand, addresses the issue on what we should do if offences of conflict or insult happen to us. Do you see the difference? One is about a judicial system and, and the, the law of the land and how the community is to be governed. But Jesus, he, 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 blows, that out, he blows that up and he talks about the personal offence. And he gives four examples. And unfortunately, we don't have the time today to kind of expand on these. Um, but each of the examples that Jesus gives in, in the culture of his day were considered very offensive if someone did these things to you for one reason or another. And he gives four examples of personal offence. And I want you to notice both the passive and the active response uh, for each, re- each uh, offence. Again, in verse 39, do not resist the evildoer. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat also. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. So how should we, as followers of Jesus, respond when we are offended? Well, firstly, Jesus says, by not retaliating. Now, that's maybe a little bit hard to hear for some people, but I think it's important to clarify that this is not a passage which teaches that you can't defend yourself. There are other passages which we would really need to look at to to examine that kind of subject. It's it's not a passage which says that you shouldn't um, react, perhaps even physically, to defend another person. There are other passages that we might look at to explore that theme. But in regards to personal offence or personal attack, where, where you are offended by what is done, Jesus says, don't retaliate. But here's the crunch, as there often is in his teaching, Jesus then calls us to go go beyond just a passive response. He calls us to take a positive action. Turn the other cheek. Give your coat as well. Go the extra mile. Give to the person who asks. 
The kingdom-minded person has a heart attitude that demonstrates restraint and seeks to bless those who have offended them. In the next section, verses 43 to 48, Jesus addresses the issue of loving our enemies. Let's have a read along and see what he has to say there. Verse 43, For for you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We know from Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were always trying to define, right down to the nth degree, all matters of of life and religious um, practice. And in, in this particular case, they wanted to define down to the nth degree who was classified as my neighbour. Because of their self-seeking desire to be seen as as righteous, they reasoned that if they could define who their neighbour was, then that would define who their enemy was. And that's how they saw it. In reality, though, the religious leaders of Jesus' day taught a very limited view of love your neighbour. It referred only to fellow Jews, hardly ever to Gentiles, and certainly not to one's enemies. In contrast to this view, however, the Old Testament is actually full of examples where God instructs his people to show the same kind of love and kindness towards all people, even their enemies. For example, and there are many, but in Exodus 23, verses 4 to 5, if you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, you must by all means return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen under its load, you must not ignore him, but be sure to help him with it. Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And there are many other passages which, which talk about God's instruction for his people to show love, empathy, compassion, help, to to their enemies. But again, context is very important here because these verses emphasise how Jews should treat those who personally harm them. We're not talking about uh, the national... uh, We're not talking about when one nation is at war with another. So we're not talking about political conflict and we're not talking about judicial court proceedings where perhaps one person has an issue with a a company or or, um, two businesses have an issue with one another. We're not talking about that situation. We're talking about personal conflict or personal harm or insult. That raises another question. How did the religious leaders of the day actually come to the conclusion that as Jews they must hate their enemies? It's actually quite complicated. But basically, there are two main streams of thought that kind of weave together to give us an answer that that apparently justifies their arrival at this belief. The first has its origins in the Lord's command to the Israelites when they were crossing into the Promised Land that they were required to wipe out all the Canaanites, not sparing any of them, which, by the way, in disobedience, they failed to do. 
The second stream of thought that intertwines into this developing idea uh, comes from a distorted understanding of several psalms, and in particular, Psalm 139. This is King David writing. Listen to the strength of his words. If only you would kill the wicked, O God. Get away from me, you violent men. They rebel against you and act deceitfully. Your enemies lie. O Lord, do I not hate those who hate you and despise those who oppose you? I absolutely hate them. They have become my enemies. That's pretty strong language from the king. But of course, the context of this psalm is also really important because here we have King David, who we must remember is acting as God's appointed king over Israel, calling down curses on Israel's enemies. As God's representative, it is David's role as king to act on God's behalf to bring about God's purpose and plan for the nation including the administration of God's wrath and judgment. So again, the context is in a political arena. God is doing uh, greater things and it has a long history. And yet somehow the religious leaders took the, the context and twisted it to mean that this actually applies to personal conflicts, which of course it doesn't. And so we find ourselves with an apparent paradox on the one hand, the Old Testament teaching that the Jews must love their enemies, and on the other hand, that the enemies of God must be destroyed. So how do we reconcile this seeming uh, contradiction? Again, in very simple terms, it boils down to the difference between the judicial role of the king and the courts and our personal response towards others, especially those who mean to harm and persecute us. In other words... And this is very simplified paraphrase. Leave judgment and punishment up to God and focus on loving our neighbours and enemies alike. But why? Why would we live like this? Jesus actually tells us in this Sermon on the Mount because he says that kingdom living is actually about embracing a different way of living, one that reflects the heart of God and demonstrates not only our love for him, but our love for others. This way of living is actually what it means to be salt and light in our world. Notice how Jesus concludes this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he calls us as kingdom-minded people to live perfect lives. Now, not perfect in the sense of without fault, because actually that's not possible. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do by narrowing the law down to only the absolutes. In effect, they were saying, look how good I am. I haven't broken the law. I don't need to be punished. I must be keeping God's law perfectly. That is moral, self-righteous piety. But that's not what perfect means here. Perfect here means to be complete, whole, fully matured. It actually, believe it or not, echoes what God had to say to the Israelites when he gave the law through Moses in the first place. When he said, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus, through his teaching, uh, tells us how we can do that. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the implication here is really important. It's that we might become more like God as we go through our lives. In the way we live, in the way we deal with those around us 
our friends, our neighbours and even our enemies and how we influence the world around us. As we close this morning, uh, I just want to bring us back to the central point of this whole part on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the law was never just given as a set of rules that had to be followed. The law was always about shaping the human heart to be more like God's. And the whole purpose of this Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus wants to show those who would follow him what the nature of true righteousness actually looks like. Heaven's kingdom rule here on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the way that it teaches and encourages us. Help us this week to not just meditate, but reflect on this passage of your word and what you are saying to us through this Sermon on the Mount. Give us the courage to really kind of dive in deeply into what it means to live as kingdom-minded people, living a different way of living as salt and light in the places where you've placed us. We thank you for your spirit, which gives us strength to live in such a way. Amen. May the Lord bless you and have a great week. Thank you.